Hi everyone, I'm Rob Langham and welcome to the 16th episode of Sounding Board. Today we're going to place the focus on the Britpop era, it being more or less two decades now since the arguable end point of a genre that made a big impact on UK culture and especially music. We'll also be appraising the new album from The Big Moon, a band that on first listen owe more than a little to the Britpop age. To facilitate this, we welcome back Mike Gibbons, who joined us for our analysis of Manchester as a music city, which we covered in episode 10 of the pod. Mike is the author of When Football Came Home, a book which centred on Euro 96, but which cast a detailed eye on the mid-90s more generally. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me back. And we also welcome back Tom Sutton, hot on the heels of his very last appearance on our most recent episode. Tom joined Neil Kennedy and I to run the rule over the music of the 2000s, or the noughties, in episode 15. So go have a listen after this one if you feel inclined to. Welcome back, Tom. Hiya. Oh, Tom. So I think we're briefly going to have a couple of bits of news this week. First of all, Mike, you had something. Um, yeah, it's not news as in the sense that it happened about six weeks ago. Uh, but I'd just like to sort of um, make a note of the passing of Clyde Stubblefield, uh, the drummer for James Brown's session band. Uh, probably the most sampled man uh, in musical history. Um, something that was never actually monetized for him, so he, he, never, he never kind of uh, accumulated the wealth that um, you know he would be entitled to. But um, yeah, I just wanted to make a quick note of that. And you know, a lot, a lot of people owe debt to him, from you know Della Soul to you know the Stone Roses famously Fool's Gold. Uh, the drum sample at the start of that is the funky drummer beat. Uh, right, that was a sample. Yeah, yeah. So despite having one of the best drummers yeah. in Britain, they still. <laughs> They still, uh, they still saw fit to steal, uh, steal from Clyde Stubblefield. So, um, yeah, rest in peace. Yes, yeah, absolutely. That must have meant a new name to me. I don't know about you, Tom. No, not heard yeah, of them, no. yeah, yeah. Um, and my music news is less news. It's just about one of the albums that out is out at the moment. Next week, I'm going to see the Moon Landings live, and I thought I'd comment on their LP, Interplanetary Class Classics. Um, the band emerged a couple of years back as the fictional band that featured in an album from the Eccentronic Research Council, which was a concept LP that owed a lot to the League of Gentlemen and featured the actress Maxine Peake. Now, would you believe it, they've actually mutated into an actual band and featuring as they do members of Fat White Family, the music is as sleazy and as schlocky as you would expect. At times it veers a little close to Rocky Horror Picture Show territory for my taste, but the songs are strong. And the live show is reputedly incendiary, so I'm going to be uh, sort of moving out of the uh, house with some trepidation next week um, en route to the Bullingdon and Oxford to see them. Um, but the album is well worth seeking out, and I think it's quite a sort of serious landmark release of the early part of the year. <laughs> So today we're going to explore Britpop, where it came from, how it fared and how it ended up. It's now 20, 21 years, 22 years arguably since the genre um, ruled the roost in UK culture. And to start with, I think we're going to pick out a key album each from the genre. Mike, you get things underway. Uh, yeah, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about Parklife, uh, Blur's album uh, from the spring uh, of 1994. Um, I think of all the albums of the Britpop era it was the one that was trying so hard to be so self-consciously British uh, about everything from you know the cover artwork uh, you know the Walthamstow dog track uh, and I think uh, Park Life the single is a, a, a standard tankard British pint of beer so all those kind of uh, 
you know, references it means to, uh, and was huge on the back of two massive singles, uh, Girls and Boys, and then Parklife um, a few months after that. Girls and Boys, obviously, about, you know, package holidays in Spain and that kind of thing. And Parklife, uh, you know, wry observations on the, you know, twee eccentricities of a... Uh, British life and, and that kind of thing. Um, so that arrived in, I think, the end of April 1994, and off the back of, I mean, we'll, we'll touch on the roots of Britpop later, but it's about three weeks after Kurt Cobain's suicide, um, which, you know, is, is a book ending in grunge, and then, you know, there's a kind of vacuum in the music industry through which, you know, uh, Britpop then uh, piles into. But I think for all the albums we might discuss in the next... Um, half hour or an hour or so I think um, yeah part life is kind of a definitive kind of document of those um, you know those peak of Britpop years I think uh, particularly in the way it, you know it, it it kind of mines the previous 30 years of British musical history I mean if, if just take the, the song part life for an example you know stars Phil Daniels the you know the the actor that was in Quadrophenia and I think even at some point in the video they do a little uh homage to Abbey Road when they you know they're crossing the, uh, the zebra crossing all in a line uh, so um, yeah I mean I don't know what your thoughts on their part life were as a well I mean I absolutely loved it yeah. I mean I, I saw them live actually in April when they, when it came out oh, in wow. uh, at Shepherd's Bush Empire in London and uh, it was just just completely impossible not to get swept up in the moment mm. it was just wonderful I mean they brought out Modern Life is Rubbish um, previously year before which I think that was the one that had the on the front of the enemy hanging out in Clapton yeah, and, yeah. and they really nailed their colours to the mast you know in, in a perhaps slightly crass way sort of anti-grunge kind of way which we touched on on our grunge episode mm. on Nirvana episode last August but uh, you know for me it was what I was I was looking for I was looking for something that was a lot of fun and quite jaunty and, mm. and you know in retrospect Maybe some of the tracks are a little bit too kind of musical esque, but but I mean I still think it's a good listen. I still really enjoy it. And it's got tracks like "This Is a Low" and and to the end, which are which are great kind of like slower tracks yeah. as well. So Tom, what the nineties it was always my favourite Blur record. I mean yeah. I think now um, I go back to Modern Life is Rubbish more because I think that's where that's that sound kind of began. Yeah, uh, yeah. though it. It, it was Modern Life is Rubbish actually was badly reviewed at the time and I think it was part like that actually captured the public imagination more mm. in the way that Modern Life is Rubbish hadn't done at the time but I don't know I go back to Modern Life is Rubbish more uh, as an older person yeah I think I think they, they, they can be seen as a, as a piece and then of course you've got the great escape later yeah. 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 diminishing returns Very although, much so. yeah. although I think the Universal still one of their yeah their and Yukon Heroes as well always. yeah mm. yeah. but um, something I want to return to later is yeah. the, the use of kind of characters in song which I think we'll talk about a bit in relation mm. to the Big Moon album which we're going to uh, review later on but yeah um, how about you Tom what, what album for the era that stands out uh, the, the one I'm going to talk about is uh, Super Free Animals uh, Radiator um, I mean I wanted, wanted to pick this because it always reminds me of the first time I ever went out um, it was sort of sixth form for me in 97 I made friends with this cool guy who he did a tape of Hunky Dory for me the soundtrack of On Way On Femme he'd given me his parents copy of uh, London Calling you know and uh, and I went in with a couple of my friends and it was really early because all the sixth formers went out like bang at 10 o'clock you know to make the most of their night and um, um, uh, my new friend was uh, dancing by himself in the middle of this room 
to uh, play it cool by Super Animals, which I haven't actually heard because uh, I've not heard the album by uh, the start of the sixth form. The album will come out that summer of '97, uh, um, and I just remember thinking it was the best thing I've ever heard, and it started my love affair with people who dance on their own in indie clubs. I just think they're absolute heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I I, I loved. Um, Super Animals. I'd, I'd heard the uh, singles from the first album, I'd not really uh, discovered it, but getting into Radiator got me firmly into uh, Super Free Animals. Um, they were kind of a bit of a, an oddity, really, for, for Britpop, because um, they were actually signed by Alan McGee in that kind of post-Oasis craze, with a load of really, really crappy bands like Hurricane Number no. 1, Heavy Stereo, <laughs> uh, like 18-Wheeler, Three Colours Red. And then he signed Sig for Animals in Camden. And he, apparently the story is that he, um, he, 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 he asked them if they could sing in English, but they have been singing in English, but with very hell heavy world <laughs> accents. Um, so it, it shows, shows that he, 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 was, uh, he, 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 he was a mad, mad genius. But, um, and, but I think when Radiator came out, and certainly you know, when, when I started getting, getting into it, it was really what um, Britpop needed particularly because of the crushing disappointment of Be Here Now. I think the two albums were actually released within a day of each other. So, like, Be Here Now got all the attention from creation and Radiator got nothing. Mm. Um, but it's Radiator that kind of shows, like, a a, a larger collection of influences that uh, lots of the other Britpop bands did, uh, you know, never kind of achieved. I mean, at that point, Britpop bands were having to kind of transcend the kind of limitations of what had become, you know, quite a kind of marketing affair. So, you know, Blur were doing Blur, like Pop, we going to do this hardcore. And uh, and there were other bands, of course, around the time that were never really Britpop, like Radio, who had, you know, who were going on to do uh, OK Computer. Uh, and Radio, but then Super Animals were there, and they were kind of stealing from Sparks and Steely Dan from the Beach Boys. Uh, and it was this glorious album. I mean, what I loved about Play It Cool that, that night in the um, Coventry Coliseum um, was that it was kind of retro, but it was also completely new as well. Um, and it was it was like perfect pop, but kind of fuzzy around the edges. And the whole album um, did that. Uh, Favourite track, She's Got Spies. It's like the Beach Boys doing Pixies. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. And a band who went on to record great album after great album. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, really tremendous. Um, and I think just to, in case anybody's wondering, I think the cool guy who Tom... Uh, became friends with wasn't David Cox who's been on previous episodes but no no his, 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 his name was uh, Bryn Tittle Bryn Tittle yeah, good Bryn Tittle yeah, yeah. Yeah. okay and you mentioned an album there that's going to be the one I focus on and that's Oasis's Be Here Now um, the album that arguably killed Britpop um, Oasis are not fashionable now um, but it's important to remember the swagger of their two previous LPs um, What's the Story Morning Glory and Definitely Maybe which are easy to bash and were wholly derivative of the 60s but my word, they captured the moment and had some truly great songs. Um, for Be Here Now, the group's PR hired a saloon car and treated journalists to laps of Regent's Park, the music blaring out. Um, it's just about sums it up. And of course, I have the famous um, image of the car in the swimming pool, which was like mm. lifted straight from like 1960s, 70s rock excess culture. Um, and even if Noel Gallagher admitted <coughs> when it came out to getting lazy in the studio, to not taking risks, and that all around the world, one of the major tracks was a bit cheesy, it was still met with universally, resoundingly euphoric reviews, with a notable exception of former Prime Minister John Major's brother, Terry Major Ball, (laughs) who was unaccountably asked to review it for the Daily Mirror. That was the kind of thing that happened back then. 
And uh, I think this might be slightly apocryphal, and it might have even been something to do with one of Oasis's later albums, but Robbie Williams, who sent the Gallagher's a wreath with the message, heard your new album, my condolences. <laughs> but um, at the time, 350,000 copies were sold on the first day, 650,000 in a week. Thoughts on Be Here Now? Well, I remember the anticipation for it. It was like what you've seen in, you know, the... Uh in the last 10 years with a Harry Potter book or something it was absolutely incredible yeah, yeah. Um, because of what they did I don't think um, they'd kind of stopped after Nebworth hadn't they so there's been about a year building up uh, people waiting for this album and I think people need to remember in the mid especially in 96 Nebworth they were so big at that point I think yeah. they had something like three and a half million applications for tickets for uh, for Nebworth and, and you know did um, a, a quarter of a million people eventually went but they were just those numbers now are just kind of beyond what uh, what you see from a, a guitar pop band. And as Noel Gallagher said at the time, I think he said Jesus never played Nebworth. Yeah, <laughs> having been goaded by a by a by a um, yeah. journalist into doing the whole Beatles, Leonard, yeah. Edward and God thing. Oh, he's a very um, humble fellow. Isn't yes, he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, how about you, Tom? I've, I've been a massive Oasis fan. I'd love definitely, maybe. I loved uh, Morning Glory. Um, and I probably bought um, Be Here Now on the first day it came out, and I just remember feeling so so disappointed. I um, yeah. I, I I I'd like to. In fact, I still like. You know what I mean? I think it's a good single, and so I, you know, I had a good feeling about the uh, mm. the album. But uh, it, it, so many songs just went on and on and on. Just and they were, the only thing to be doing that just because they could. You know, they'd been. Yeah. It, yeah. it was it was a band who'd been overindulged, yeah. taking far too much cocaine. I mean, I think of. If Cocaine made an album on a bad day, it would be, be here now. On a good day, it would be um, uh, Fleetwood Mac, uh, probably. Yes. Uh, yeah. on, on one of their albums. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, um, you've mentioned, or already mentioned Creation Records a couple of times today, which I think there's enough material there for us to return to do a Creation Records podcast at some point. Obviously, they've been slightly bankrupted by um, My Bloody Valentine's Loveless album, which cost, you know, untold amounts of money to make. Um, and were on their knees and then Oasis saved them got them out of it but then of course it all became about the sunglasses and, and, and excess later on yeah. but you know Alan McGee still knew how to pick a good tune as we've seen with yeah. the, the Super Fairies so uh, yeah so interesting selection of albums there and of course we could have gone for countless others which we hope will crop up in conversation now throughout the rest of the podcast uh, so so Britpop really I mean we, 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 where did it come from? How did it start? What were the root causes of Britpop? We 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 touched on this a bit, but um, Tom, what, what, what were the musical antecedents? I mean, in some ways, there were different sorts of Britpop, so it's difficult to give a definitive answer. I mean, at the time, there was lots made of the whole north-south divide because of the uh, Oasis Blur rivalry, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't really that clear cut. I mean, when I think about it, there were those bands that were just kind of in the Oasis kind of mould, uh, you know, 60s pastiche artists um, who were, you know, just kind of riding on the back of the Beatles uh, to an extent. Um, but then that wasn't true of of Blur or Suede or even, even Pulp. So there was a kind of art school mentality, which was part of Britpop as well, um, which I guess had its, uh, you know, roots in kind of, you know, um, indie pop. Um but then you've also got things like Baggy to think of, Shoegaze. I mean, they, 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 there were lots of different kind of like divisions within indie pop. Uh, and 
Uh, yeah, so uh, you know, you, it's, it's it's funny when you start thinking about Britpop because you know you can't really compare a band like Cast with Sleeper. You know, I mean, it's different source of Britpop. Oh, there's a lot of shoehorning going on. As to, we mentioned Radiohead early on, which the Benz came out like pretty much in the middle of the Britpop mm-hmm. era, but I don't early ninety five. Yeah, 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 I don't think it was kind of classified as such. I mean, another one you mentioned, I, I certainly saw the parallels with like mid eighties indie. Yeah. as being like a big thing as well as the obvious 60s stuff and then also the whole kind of two-tone madness kind of era you know certainly mm. in terms of the iconography in, so, an, in yeah. an interview actually in 94 Noel Gallagher made a link between, from the Beatles to the Stooges to the Sex Pistols to the Smiths to the uh, Stone Roses to Oasis that was the line that he saw yeah and that's that's not far off I think mm. really in terms of certainly I think there's some some sort of truth in that what about you Mike how do you see it when it emerged um, I just saw it as a kind of combination of circumstances really I mean we've talked about um, you know, Kirk Cobain's suicide and then the kind of the end of the kind of grunge thing but in you know in the UK itself I mean Baggy was pretty much on its backside you know Factory Records went belly up in 93 yeah. uh, the Stone Roses disappeared they took five years to make uh, their second album which came out you know kind of in the early stages of Britpop and was a you know a complete disappointment because they kind of gone to a metal, a more you know Led Zeppelin kind of sound, which wasn't yeah. kind of you know in keeping with what was happening at the time. Uh, and you know, you also had things like you know um, Acid House and Dance, who's being clamped down on by the Criminal Justice Bill. And yeah, you had all these kind of uh, things going on that created a vacuum. You know, like the Lars disappeared as well. They you know they, and they split up. So you kind of need something to fill that with. So I thought I've always kind of seen Britpop as a kind of something kind of created by journalists and the music press really to kind of they shoehorned a lot of things together that happened to be going on you know when a lot of these bands were based in Camden kind of thing so a lot of it sits very awkwardly together for me I mean I don't see much of a relationship between Pulp and Oasis no. you know in terms of sound influence or any of that kind of stuff um, so yeah I mean that, I think that's where it comes from for me like there, there was just this hole that needed to be filled really um and they kind of cobbled it together out of about four bands, and then they just went and signed a lot of bands that then sounded like them. Yeah, Alex James makes a similar point in his book. Yeah. He says there's you know, about four bands for Britpop that, that, um, who didn't really see eye to eye, then a lot yeah. of other bands that sounded like those four bands. Yeah. I think I mean, it was Enemy cover with Suede on that was one of the really early, early kind of big statements about it, and you always sense that Suede were very reluctantly. Yeah, I mean, it was the. I think it was a, it was a select magazine cover, wasn't it, from like yes, 1993, right. yeah. uh, where he's kind of wrapped in the Union Jack, mm. kind of a la Morrissey, which you know, <laughs> yeah. Morrissey was absolutely crucified for. I mean, one of the things we'll come on to with this is, I guess, is the uh, the rehabilitation briefly of the Union Jack, as you know, yes. uh, yeah. um, as a as a symbol, like, very clumsily used at some points. But um, yeah, I never felt swayed with very very kind of comfortable with that kind of moniker either yeah. there was just something because I think the dominant forces in British culture at the time you know in film in music in television were all from America really so yeah. there, there was this air of like let's create something for ourselves so it's a bit forced in that sense I think but I do think that's where it, where it, a lot of it came from yeah yeah um, and so later on actually in terms of the era overall there were a lot of wider cultural happenings outside music. How did Britpop fit in with that as it was going on? Yeah. Uh, well, there was a kind of sense of um, the whole era, I think, it was being driven by people roughly between the age of, I don't know, 20 and 30, in, well, in music particularly, and they're, they're all kind of, uh, 
you know, people who would have grown up during the 1980s, not going to mention her name, but, uh, you, you know, a very difficult time. And I think once, once you came into the 90s, there was this general air of optimism and you could feel it in music and it was echoed in a lot of other uh, art forms as well, you know, in, well, in art itself, Damien Hirst, um, you know, Tracy Emin, um, you know, Train Spotting, which is a, a fantastic book and, and the film that came out off the back of that, which is I think one of the few innovative things that came out of um, Cool Britannia, which is the, the cultural extension of Britpop, um, is that hitherto, you know, British films have been you know, a lot of, you know, very foppish, idiotic people in North London mumbling their feelings. And all of a sudden in Trainspotting, you had, you know, three smackheads and a psychopath, uh, you know, talking or something you you recognise more. I mean, not the smack addiction, addiction obviously, but the... Uh, even in the early 90s yeah. film, you know, you had some quite depressing or kind of hard-hitting kind of movies coming out, like uh, Ken Loach's... Um, Raining Stones came yeah, out, yeah. you know, this was still very influenced by the kind of that feeling of the 80s. Mike Lee's Naked, which is a film I've mm. watched once, what, once, watched once, and I don't think I ever want to watch again. Mm. Um, and then Train Spotting really was kind of a, yeah. something that was. It, it still had a grittiness, British grittiness to it, but it mm. was a fun movie as well. But it, uh, yeah, echoed that kind of vibrant, optimistic kind of thing of the mid nineties, I think. And you know, Danny Boyle for the soundtrack co-opted a lot of yeah, you know, reading lights of Brit Pop to go onto. You know, what's onto a very iconic soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, actually talking about films also, there was revivalism for 60s films that fitted the template. Mm. So you had things like Get Carter, which was suddenly sort of seen as the acme of cool. Yeah. And perhaps less um, less impressively, um, Italian Job, and, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. an obvious one. These were suddenly well back in fashion, weren't they? And, yeah. and referenced by some of the indie bands as well. You're a yeah. big man, but you're out of shape, referenced in the Sleeper song. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Which what which sleep song is that? You're a big man, but you're out of shape. Which is a track. I think that's the first attempt to sing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, you also, I mean, Mike, you've written the book When Football Came Home about Euro '96, and that yeah. obviously has some kind of like parallels as well. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and the, the kind of whole brief revival of kind of national pride. I mean, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to wrestle with in Britain, I think, because you know, normally the sp- displays of any kind of national pride in Britain, it, it doesn't take very long for them to get very boorish, very aggressive, very, you know, finger-pointing in the chest kind of thing, uh, you know, like last night at the proms or something like that. It's very, you know, very imperialist, very kind of, you know, we're better than you kind of thing. But, um, for yeah, for a while, the whole Britpop, Cool Britannia thing, it felt like a bit of, you know... A celebration, a revival, and I think part of that was to do with the, you know, this era of change which is going through the country. I mean, Tony Blair uh, took over the Labour Party or the leadership of the Labour Party in '94, I think. By '95, he'd rebranded them as New Labour. Uh, I think on in May of '95, they absolutely crushed the Conservatives in the local elections. They won like two thousand seats off them. And on that same night, I think Oasis debuted, uh, some might say, on top of the pops, which is always seen as this kind of seminal, you know, we will find a bride. I'm not going to sing like, (laughs) I can't sing as well as Tom, I'm afraid. Um, And it did kind of capture that air of optimism at the time. There were other things going on, like, you know, there was a heat wave going on that caused a water shortage in Yorkshire, of all places. Yeah. And it, that summer of 95, I think, was where it, it all kind of accelerated and probably got lasted right through until 
the end of Euro 96 and Gareth Southgate missing that penalty, that kind of like a year of just uh, weirdly relentless optimism. And I think you really had to be there to kind of appreciate how kind of palpable that all was. Yeah. Dodgy's coming out for the summer was a big track, summer 95. Yeah, yeah. Was kind of that, yeah, yeah. the uh, uh, optimism, I guess. Um, I wanted to touch on something you brought up before about that reaction to uh, American music. I, yeah. mean, I think that was very deliberate on lots of the Britpop bands as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I read the Alex James's uh, memoir in preparation for this uh, podcast, and uh, I hadn't. I mean, I, I always thought that Oasis, you know, but I didn't really do that well in America until Song 2 came along um, but uh, you know I didn't realise how much extensive touring Blur had actually done in the States mm. And but they they, they ploughed the same line even though it wasn't really in keeping you know all the kind of American uh, TV stations particularly MTV were looking for kind of the stuff post grunge you know that was going and that, that, that American sound was so very different to uh, mm. what was going on in, in, in the UK um, and yeah, blur, 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 blur. Cap- they, they did. They, they weren't. They they wouldn't change their sound. They, in, yeah. Instead, they carried on, and uh, I think that that was important because I think there was pressure on them to do something more in keeping with where they were going, maybe with leisure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think there's things like um, yeah, Jarvis Cocker at the Brits yeah. with uh, Michael Jackson that did as a kind of broader jet. It did feel like a bit of a two fingers up to America. Yeah. Like it, it had that kind of kind of feeling about it. I think as well, you know, America's biggest, uh, most iconic pop star. Yeah, was that the and Brits where Mrs. Merton went on? I don't know if I was looking for Charlie out of the back. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What year was that? I think I think that was '96. I think that was the year Oasis uh, mm. kind of queened up. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess Britpop in some ways you could say in the parallel to Blair, you have this anticipation, don't you? You know, mm. Blair was probably most popular when he hadn't yet. Ascended to power. So the period between 94 and 97. I mean, I didn't realise that the famous party where Noel Gallagher and others went round to number 10 at Blair's uh, invitation was was very near to the release of Be Here Now. And then um, I I also understand it it wasn't long before sort of the death of Princess Diana, which might also be seen as another kind of end point. There were a lot of end points to Brit pop, I think, and to Brit culture. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, one band actually, I just wanted to touch on that. I think we don't tend to count as Brit pop, maybe on quality grounds, but inarguably, looking back on it, they probably were the Spice Girls. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, did, yeah. Where, where would you think they stand? Going back to the Union Jack argument. Yeah, well, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Particularly Jerry Halliwell. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think that was all a few months on from. I think Noel Gallagher did Don't Look Back in Anger on Top of the Pops with a Union Jack guitar. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I guess I guess after Nebworth, it felt like Britpop, it took a bit of a hiatus in a kind of way, because it took Oasis, you know, a year to make another album. Blur and Pulp quite self-consciously went in different directions, and Elastica disappeared, and, you know, they're, they're what I would consider to be the big four for the era. So all of a sudden, the, the, the charts get emptied, and then kind of pop comes... Uh, comes flooding back in but, yeah. Um, yeah you know obviously you know a manufactured um, Simon Fuller pop act but then you know within Britpop you had you know, things like menswear things that were you know were put together and purpose designed for the uh, the zeitgeist as well that's right I, I mean bands had to, had to move on I mean lots of Britpop bands just were get, going into ballad mode you know you had bands yeah. like Embrace kind of suddenly coming out mm. and 
the things which it was production values were just terrible you know more strings were added or horn sections just for the sake of yeah. it um, so bands had to move on you know and release albums that may not have been as commercially viable as uh, you know the kind of Britpop sounding ones yeah that's right um, we've touched on it a little bit already but just in terms of the Britpop you know how did it manage to surf that wave between mindless and offensive xenophobia and old fashioned fun and did it do so successfully and when did it start tipping over what were the, the, the issues that saw it tip over into like being a bit unpleasant so we're going to talk about Fat Les. Uh, Fat Les. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I thought that was more of an art project. It was just oh, some, absolutely, yeah. some mm. mates at the Groucho Club messing around. And, yeah. uh, you know, they, 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 they sold uh, more records with uh, Vindaloo than Blur had ever sold, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, right. think, I think for the most part, I think Britpop just about got away with it. Um you know, a lot of it was like, you know, very twee, aren't we so jolly eccentric kind of stuff about it, to the point where it just died out of self-parody, I think. Um, you know, a lot of the air I've heard the air he described as like carry-on cocaine as a kind of, you know, uh, as a summary of it. Um, but there, there, there were points where it got a bit, you know, a bit darker, I think. Um, I saw an interview on to the Asian Dub Foundation Um who absolutely slated Britpop. They called it the most disgusting musical phenomenon that's ever happened in this country. Mm. Uh, and just summed it up, oh, it's conservative, it's reactionary, and it's very white. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, it is hard to argue against those things, I yeah. think. Mm. Yeah. I, I, yes, to an extent, I think mm. so. I mean, like they're a band I've got a lot of time for, yeah. and perhaps one of the most impressive bands of the early part of the decade. It depends but, um, on how you uh, define Britpop. I mean, in the mm. uh, documentary Live Forever, mm. they actually include uh, Bristol and Portishead as yeah. kind of a, a, a part of that. That yeah. felt like a real reach, actually, in that it, film. It, 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 it was, yeah. I, I, I thought. But, uh, you know, I guess it's... Um, they're talking about things yeah. that were going on at that time. I think, but, I mean, uh, uh, the relationship <laughs> and the intermingling with trip hop is an interesting thing because they pretty much did coexist. I remember going down to the Virgin Megastore in London on mm. the day the Mezzanine came out, the Massive Attack album, which I think was a bit later, it might have been 98, but, yeah. and, and, and everybody was mm. buying it. It was at lunchtime, everybody had left the office and was queuing, and massive queues just to get that album. And um, so trip hop, I think, will be something that we'll return to on the podcast mm-hmm. because it deserves its own kind of treatment yeah. and how it interrelates with, with Britpop would be, you know, worth doing, I think. Yeah. yeah. And also yeah. Bjork as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one thing that I, I recall from the era, which obviously is still going strong now, unfortunately, is the kind of laddishness, the kind of the lad mag, how yeah. that all emerged, loaded FHM. I mean, really, when you picked up one of those mags, the content, yeah, it, it, it was short of being sort of full-on porn, but yeah. but really, I mean, the content was like, you know, demeaning to women yeah. in, in, in the extreme without yeah, being yeah. too po-faced about it. Quite shocking, really, the kind of objectivization yeah. of women in, the, in, in those magazines, but, but they did become very popular in the era, didn't they? Yeah, and I think like, William Gallagher became a bit of a poster boy for them. In yeah, sense, but, yeah. But, I mean, it's amazing the areas that that kind of influence seeped into. I mean... Um, when they cloned Dolly the Sheep, uh, the Edinburgh Institute, um, the reason she's called Dolly the Sheep is uh, she's derived from a mammary gland. And one of the scientists actually said to the BBC, uh, we couldn't think of a more impressive pair of glands than Dolly's. Really? And this is a scientist you wow. know, saying this, you yeah. know, going for the whole, uh, you know, being influenced by the whole laddish kind of uh, 
tone of the time. So it just it just shows you how kind of prevalent that all was, I think. Yeah, it was the start of that kind of age of irony, I guess. And yeah. It, it, uh, and, and there was a feeling you, you could say anything as long as you were being clever. And, it, 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 you know, it, it went to kind of these extremes where offensive behaviour was, uh, you know, seemed, seemed okay. I mean, we've kind of gone the other way now by, mm. by 2017, you know. Mm. We're going back to saying things aren't okay, you know, recently so. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I have to say, thank goodness for Pulp, because I think a lot of people excused Oasis on the on the lines of their working class, you know, don't judge yeah, working yeah. class people by your middle class values, but Pulp were also working class and yet somehow managed not to be sexist and offensive. Yeah. And, and all the rest of it. So, you know, I mean, I think, you know, that's, that, that's just such an easy argument to make. So, I mean, Tom, of the runts of the Britpop litter, are there any that have been unfairly maligned um, or were unsuccessful at the time? Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, Back in Denim uh, as an album. Yeah. I, I mean, that uh, made a number 50, I think, on this a recent... By Denim, uh, yeah. By, yeah. by Denim, yeah. yeah. Um, my main number 50, I think, on a recent uh, Pitchfork list of uh, Britpop albums. Um, I mean, it's actually an album I came to later. I didn't, I, w- I wasn't a fan of it at the time. Um, but I think that had the playfulness of Britpop. And it was very, very different to Felt uh, in terms of uh, the, the um, lead singer being such a Felt before and then became, became yeah. Denim as a, a, a new project. Um, well, I think that's a very underrated album, and I love I love Back in Denim. I'd agree with you. I think it's tremendous, and they were very much at the vanguard. Actually, they that came out about the same time as Suede's first album, didn't it? I think. Or, it's three, yeah. yeah. So I think it was like very early in the process. I think for me, I mean, not really a Britpop album, but. Boo Radley's Giant Steps, which came out, I think, in about 94, 95, was a superb album, very psychedelic in feel and, and wasn't really lumped in with Britpop at the time. Then later on, they unapologetically recorded Wake Up Boo and became like the, anti- the, the kind of, you know, the epitome of like Britpop mindlessness with that. And Chris Evans, of course, used it as a as a jingle. But I think a lot of people came to them at that point, didn't know about Giant Steps, which is an absolutely brilliant album. So I'd say that they probably deserve to sort of be, have a better reputation in the musical pantheon than, than they get at the moment. But then the album After Wake Up was a noisy album as well, because yeah. they were trying to react against uh, what they'd done with yeah. Wake Up. So, you know, they were a band of, uh, you know, different sides very much. Absolutely. I think the very early stuff is Shoegaze primarily, mm. you know. So, yeah, how about you, Mike? Anything you'd pick out? Uh, yeah, I'd pick out a Teenage Fan Club. Uh, Grand yeah. Prix released in 1995. I mean, I love Teenage Fan Club. That's one of my favourite albums of theirs, but. They're one of the most overshadowed bands in British history, I think. Because uh, they're signed to creation, but they've always kind of been, you know, below the rung of like Primal Screaming Oasis. Uh, the success of Bandwagon esque, or the relative success of it, was kind of covered by grunge and by Screamadelica. And then with Grand Prix, it was when, you know, the creation's pretty much sole focus was on Oasis, to the point where I don't think. Um, any of the singles off Grand Prix even charted, but if you if you see it in kind of reviews of greatest albums of the nineties or anything like that, now it always you know it always comes up very highly Grand Prix. So I'd, yeah, I'd make a case for them. I'd also mention Black Grape as well. Yeah, oh, yeah, um, yeah. Fr- from the ashes of the Happy Monday, somehow yeah. Sean Ryder got it together for long enough to uh, to form another band, and I think they you know they're. they're they're a band that are very open to self-parody, I think. But I think mm. they took on a lot of spirit of the era. There's mm. some very, you know, kind of knowing, uh, 
you know, telling lyrics about the whole thing as well. Uh, so in the name of the father and things like that, I'm thinking of. And, uh, I love Kelly's Heroes. Kelly's like, Heroes are great. England's Irie, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Great. <laughs> and a little mention there, Keith Allen pops up in that, as, oh. he, as he popped up in absolutely everything throughout the year. Uh, well, Britpop had a few of those characters, didn't it? People who you weren't quite sure. I mean, on, Keith yeah. Allen, the amount of films, or the, certainly the yeah. amount of minutes mm. in films that he was in in the era was probably pretty yeah. low. Yeah. But he just became one of those quintessential figures. And of course, yeah. the, the, the video to Country House by Blur was almost the kind of like the, the uh, project of the era. Well, that was, <laughs> that was in Shallow Grave yeah. and Trade Spot. Of course, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah. And Country House, that was directed by Damien Hurst as well. Of course. So it's just yeah. a collection of all these. Uh, kind of cool Britannia figures and it's a surprise uh, Chris Evans wasn't in there yeah you mentioned the Groucho Club earlier on as well which was very much part of it Um, any other sort of lesser lights of Britpop that you think I think the first Elastica album stands up I think it's absolutely fantastic I think it's arguable whether the lesser lights I think they're probably generally critically sort of held up as yeah I think within that but yeah I'd agree you know it's really good but of course like you know really really kind of a lot of dark backstory to that I'd defend their second album as well The Menace really and we haven't mentioned it yet but John Harris's book um, The Last Party absolutely magnificent Brilliant chronicle book, of the yeah. era you know which I really urge anybody to to read and I think we'll probably return on a kind of books episode we're hoping to get Ben back who was on the first 12 pods mm. uh, later in the year to do a kind of music books kind of episode and that will surely come up in that right fellas big debate which was the best Britpop band I think it has to be Blur yeah yeah, uh, just in in terms of that, they were one of the few bands that actually had three or four different stages throughout their career. Just in in, in the nineties, different sounds that they were going for, and in terms of their influence, you know, it's un, undeniable. And Mike, apart from heavy stereo, who are you <laughs> Gene? Uh, no, um, I mean, I I'd, I'd have to go for Blur as well. Yeah, I don't think. It can be argued, really. I mean, at the time, and you know, for what they went on to do later. I mean, my favourite albums by Blur. Um, well, my favourite one is Thirteen, which is obviously you know outside of the Britpop era and completely different to you know the, the kind of three documented albums that they did at the time. And they've they've always been very good at being kind of quite chameleon like and you know moving away from. Like if you throw Gorillas in as well, and Marley Music, and yeah, and, and the Good, the Bad, exactly. and the Queen, you know. Well, Alex James's band, Me, Me, Me. <laughs> I'm not familiar with the earth. Uh, one yeah. single is absolutely dreadful. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mean, I think I'm with you just because of that variation. I mean, just extraordinary ability to switch from. I mean, you know, the, the first album's got obviously got. There's no other way on it, which is a kind of Britpop single before Britpop, um, but then the rest of the album's pretty disappointing. Kind of trying to be grunge, trying to be uh, um, shoegaze, trying to be baggy a bit. Um, but then with Modern Life is Rubbish through uh, to Park Life with a dip with the Universal I have to say um, despite one or two good songs and then you know reinventing themselves for like an American market with Blur yeah. Um, you know yeah I mean they probably get it I mean I'm going to shout out because people are going to be screaming at the, at, the, at the kind of through their headphones at no mention or not too much mention so far with Pulp I mean I think you know Different Class was the number one album in the recent Pitchfork poll that you mentioned earlier on Tom Uh, a brilliant album I think you know and Blur Pulp you know had that and then before that Heads and Hers which is also very good and they're sort of very much quite similar albums then of course they moved on to This Is Hardcore which was the kind of disavowal of the Mm -hmm. whole 
sort of you know sort of jauntiness thing um so i think i think they deserve a shout and then suede as well i think you know um i mean suede's sort of rivalry with blur played off off the pitch as well you know Mm -hmm. sort of like you know on the on the love side of things so i think um you know you always felt that brett anderson i mean i remember someone describing uh, i think it was the nme described uh dogman star suede's album as the aesthetes uh, response to to Parklife, you know, that was a really brilliant album. You know, very very kind of serious and cinematic, and yeah. and you know, very different from Blur, which was a far more kind of throwaway and effortless kind of kind of effect. So yeah, I, I found the Dogman stuff quite bombastic at the time. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I listened to it again recently, and I oh, I felt the same really. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah, but Suede has fantastic B sides. We were just talking before we put they put the microphone on. You know, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. My Dark Star is a fantastic track. My yeah. Sociable One. Yeah. Good bands. So we haven't mentioned Oasis. Um, at the time, they they, they <coughs> always said that with the, the single runoff um, for um, Country House and, mm. is it some might say? Uh, roll With It. Roll With It, yeah. that, that Blur won the battle, but Oasis won the war, um, you know, in terms of popularity and mm. sales and, and fame. Um Oasis, I mean, it, I, I tend to think that they probably, the Oasis bashing has probably sort of proceeded far enough now. Yeah, yeah. Well, although I put it. Blur as my fav- favourite and said that you know, they were the best band for me of that, that era, there was no, there wasn't a band like Oasis that intended so much excitement. I mean, there was such an excitement when Definitely Maybe came out. There was something about some of those songs, Live Forever, Slide Away, Columbia, that were just really captured something um, and I think that's why for me I've found you know the late, their latest stuff so disappointing because they were never able to recapture that excitement of their first record yeah yeah. yeah. I yeah. think they, they just got so big didn't they they just kind of outgrew the genre they were in really I mean by 1996 at, at one point I think they had seven singles in the top for 50 or something like that and they hadn't even released anything for three months I mean everyone was buying their you know, their singles, which are EPs. And they, uh, one thing they did do at that time and then stopped almost abruptly after Be Here Now is they did do really great B-sides as well. Head Drinker is one of their best songs. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So every kind of uh, single release was like, you know, an event, you know, a mini album in itself kind of thing. Yeah. Great, okay, well, thanks, fellas. Um, after this break, we are going to explore a very Britpop influence album that's come out in the last month or so by The Big Moon. <laughs> Hi again. Well, today uh, we're going to review an album by The Big Moon. In our last episode, we reviewed a new album from an arguably quintessential noughties band to fit with the theme of our discussions. That was Dirty Projectors. Um, And I think The Big Moon arguably are maybe doing the same in relation to Britpop uh, with their album Fourth Dimension. Sorry, Love in the Fourth Dimension. Sorry, I will get that right. and I think it's, I'd go to far, as far to say as that it's one of the most Britpop-sounding albums from a new artist since the demise of the genre, although we can sort of talk a little bit about Land for Lindy. Um, fellas, what, what do you think? What were your first impressions of the album, Tom? Um, this album didn't do much for me, unfortunately. Um, now I don't really think this is a great forum to be kind of unnecessarily negative about about things, no, so I don't, I, don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be unnecessarily harsh about this album because, you know, there was nothing, there was nothing I, I didn't like about it. I wouldn't kind of say I was critical of it for any particular reason, but I didn't, I didn't engage with it in any way. Um, yeah. And 
I was hoping, um, based on what I'd read about the band, that it would be it would fill me with a sense of nostalgia for the '90s and for Britpop, uh, and it, it didn't really do that. I mean, they they, they they're a, a capable indie band, and I, I know that's damning with faint praise, but um, yeah, this didn't work for me. Yeah, how about you, Mike? Mm. It was very evocative of Britpop, obviously, in the whole um, the whole time. I mean, I put this album on my my iPod, and uh, when I was writing the uh, the book there that you mentioned earlier, I stripped all of my uh, music off my iPod that wasn't anything from ninety four to ninety six, just so I could like focus in on that time and kind of go a bit method of it. And I, I've never changed those settings back. So when I put this album on there as well, it's, it's, it kind of fits on like almost seamlessly. But um, yeah, it is a, a kind of pastiche record of a you know an era that was you know based on you know pastiches of British music from the past. So it, it does feel a bit like of a Hall of Mirrors kind of thing. But I did I I really enjoyed it, and uh, you know a lot more than a lot of the bands that came in the wake of the kind of big bands in Britpop. You know, like, you know Menswear, Gene, whoever, um, where you just think, well, I've heard all this before. I, I didn't feel that as much with this. Although I do think you know it is very evocative of all, all the same things. I think if you slotted it into the Britpop era, it would slot in in the Europa League placings, wouldn't it? So it wouldn't yeah. be seen as <laughs> yeah. pulp levels, but probably better than most of the rumps of the litter, which we talked yeah. about. A, few a shed seven, definitely maybe. better a shed than men's yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, you know one thing that's interesting is Silent Movie Susie, which is a single from last year mm. um, that did get quite a lot of airplay. Uh, that sort of almost revives the Britpop uh, trope of of using characters in songs which blurred with sort of Tracy Jacks and yeah. Arnold Same and that kind of thing. And but that was a heartback also to the Beatles and the Kinks as well. Small faces to this. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I do quite like that and I think it's a really good song. I mean, I saw them live last year at uh, the Truck Festival in Steventon and uh, they were pretty underwhelming, but I have to say throw a not very well-known band onto the main stage at a festival and I defy anybody to come across as well because mm. I'm, I'm increasingly of the mind that the best gigs I go to are the ones which the audiences are most up for mm. and, 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 and you know people weren't so much up for it at that time but I'm, they're playing again this year I think and I'm sure that they'll be very well received now the album's out and again a lot of good reviews so I mean I quite I, 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 I really enjoyed the album I think it's got some good songs I mean I was thinking back to some of those god-awful but guilty pleasure kind of shine compilations yeah. you know like where you, know, you can imagine like a couple of the tracks on this like the one bonfire just like sort of fitting in seamlessly to that and I, I was working in Camden at the time of Britpop and we used to sort of just cane the jukebox in the pub we used to go to which wasn't the good mixer I have to say we used to go to the Oxford Arms and and you know like we would I can imagine just turning up there on Friday night and like just putting the big moon on and uh, I think you know they're sassy you know bands I mean they've been described as you know in a in a in a sort of the review online of best fit as just four mates having a laugh which is a classic sort of thing you'd say about a Britpop band um, and taking the devil may care attitude that made Britpop so exciting and brought it to modern Britain and bringing it to modern festival going audiences perhaps all a bit overstated but but um, do you think there might be part... I mean, is there anything you've heard? I mean, I've heard a couple of bands recently. I saw Black Honey at Bedford Esquires last week, who I think could also be seen as evidence of a Britpop revival. Um, just in terms of revivalism, is it logical that movements re-emerge a generation after the previous time, given kids' tendency to listen to parents' record collections? Would you say? Yeah. Just I, I generally, think, not just... I think definitely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, 
you know, Britpop was uh, detracted aside. Brit Britpop was a fun time to be getting into music and getting into new bands. Um, and if there could be a new time of people feeling optimistic rather than pessimistic, which is how a lot of people feel at the moment, uh, mm. then that's great. My yeah. perspective. The only question is, as a 48-year-old, I'm not sure I'm going to be at the Vanguard <laughs> that, but, <laughs> but um, it's interesting to... Well, it's up for a new generation. To well, this forward. is it. It's interesting to wonder what, what the new generation can take from, from, from these things, which, I mean, Britpop itself was, a, in most cases, as you've already explored, a complete recreation of other yeah. musical eras, but put its own stamp to it. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I think one thing that's kind of changed in the last 20 years now is because of the internet sort of all culture exists at the same time kind of thing mm. so you don't have you know records being deleted anymore and then disappearing and only only being available from charity shops and that kind of thing mm. so if you need to mine influences i mean it, it's kind of all there at your fingertips now yeah in, in, at the in, same in time we are past that kind of playful postmodern era yeah, I think there's there's lots in the culture that's far more po-faced. So yeah. if the night is going to be recreated, it recreated in a very different way. I'd say. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But I mean, I think Big Moon are bringing their own stamp to it. I mean, I personally really enjoyed the album so far, and I think it's it's all worth hunting out definitely. So, thanks very much, fellas. Uh, we'll be back uh, in a month or so. Whether being back in a month means anything when people listen to podcasts at different times or not, I don't know. Uh, with 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 a new topic for discussion. But thanks very much. For for listening we've had three episodes coming out in fairly quick succession in the last few weeks um as ever our coordinates um probably the best place to contact us is via twitter it's at soundingboard 69 and then importantly and i forgot to mention this last time the actual podcast is on the podbean site it's soundingboard.podbean.com and you can kind of listen and download from there and, and follow us and that's probably like the best way of getting the podcast and of course you can subscribe on itunes and if you were kind enough if you could leave a review on itunes i understand that means greater discoverability and visibility so um thanks very much for what i think has been a very enjoyable discussion and i hope everybody listening enjoyed it too